the genesis of Splunk was all about not ever thinking about or worrying about the structure of data. How can you use data in ways that dramatically impact not just your daily life, but the lives around you? If you're a fan of Hidden in Plain Sight, you've heard that the podcast is generously sponsored by Splunk, the data to everything platform. The reason why we partnered with Splunk to produce this show is because they are building the future, not just with cutting edge technology, but with how they think about data and its uses. And when it comes to data, having the guiding hand of principles is critical. So today we brought in Doug Merritt, the CEO of Splunk. We cover many things in this interview, including the principles and a behind the scenes look at the data industry. Doug has been the CEO of Splunk for over six years, and during that time, he's curated a unique perspective on leadership, the potential of data, and technology's role in creating a bright future we can all get behind. Today, we cover a wide range of topics, including the four principles of data leadership, which include transparency, diversity, collaboration, and courage. We cover why leaders should make sure that they're a part of an affinity group and how it can better their personal and professional development. We talk about storytelling and its role in technology. And also, we cover why we're no longer in the information age, but instead, we're in the age of data. Data is changing how we do everything. In order to tap into that power, a new mindset is required, one that ingrains data into everything we do. It's no longer a supplement to decision-making, but now it's the core driver of what conversations and decisions we should be making to begin with. Let's jump into today's interview with Doug Merritt, the CEO of Splunk. This season of Hidden in Plain Sight is brought to you exclusively by our friends at Splunk, the data to everything platform. Splunk helps organizations worldwide turn data into doing. It's time for data to be more than a record of what happened. It's time to make things happen. Learn more at splunk.com or by clicking the link in our show notes. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chad. I'm really happy to be back. I'm excited you're back as well. This is the third time. This is our trilogy of conversations. We have a lot to cover. So if you're ready, let's jump into it. Absolutely. So the first thing I would love to talk to you about is kind of let's set the ethical and moral stage here for what we're talking about, because these are big, these are heady subjects that impact a lot of people and a lot of lives. So at your role as CEO of Splunk, you've developed something called the four principles of data leadership. These are hard-won insights that you've collected and iterated over a period of 16 years. Let's start with those. What are these four principles and why do they matter? What's interesting about the principles to me, Chad, is they actually are super similar to the principles of, of the way that humans interact and, and human society. We just have watched so many different attempts to come to more effective decisions with data that I honestly think we're just mirroring uh, so many of the, the principles or values that companies have. Um, so the four principles, one of them is uh, transparency, that the whole point of gathering data and trying to make more informed decisions through data is to bring higher fidelity to decisions and without high transparency in the data, where it came from, who touched it, um, how it's been manipulated, and, and the ability to, to create that, that trail for third parties. I think it's difficult to have confidence in data. Uh, second principle is um, diversity of data, uh, that the more sources you get, just like in life, the more viewpoints you get, 
the higher chance you have for higher fidelity insights and breakthroughs. And I know that sounds self-serving to Splunk because it costs money to process that data. Um, and, and obviously, uh, our cloud service, as an example, is based on the amount of infrastructure you consume. But we really, really want um, high fidelity and high accuracy decisions. So uh, transparency, diversity of data, high collaboration around data. The more people you bring, given that you're very transparent with the data and you've got a very robust and diverse set of data, now you need a diverse set of viewpoints of the population that's interacting with that data. Um, So again, you can really attack it from every possible angle, get as many aha moments as possible, and from that, that interaction, come up with the best possible solution in a sea of solutions. Um, and the fourth is a, is a very human aspect to this data, um, which is you have to have courage around data. That data, the whole point, again, is it's going to inform your thinking, and often it will inform you in ways that you didn't predict at the outset. And it may actually give you guidance that is contrary to policies or statements or directions that you have made um, as an individual, within your family, within your company or community, and that's got to be okay. You've got to be courageous enough to listen to the data and really understand it and be willing to change your position because it's much more well-informed by fact and substance. So transparency, diversity, collaboration, and courage are are the four that, that I constantly talk about. I love those. And so I brought those up because I saw them uh, referenced in a recent Fortune article where you provided some commentary specifically as it relates to some challenges that are going on right now with the pandemic. So this is a quote from the article. The current U.S. administration decided to reroute coronavirus hospitalization data from the Center for Disease Control to the Department of Health and Human Services. That announcement has raised concerns that the White House may be trying to take control of local hospital data about COVID cases to downplay the surging pandemic, end quote. What was interesting about your commentary is you said that that isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it is something that leaders and the public need to be aware of and generally just be aware of and start commenting on. So why did you make those statements and why can the you know four principles of data leadership help us here? The conclusion that that quote got to, which is, hey, the White House is trying to manipulate, where I was trying to provide a balanced view is CDC actually reports into HHS, ironically. Um, So you've got data going from one division of the government to a different division. Um, And there could be, uh, because I'm not in government and I'm not working for the CDC or HHS, but that move by itself is is not problematic. The problem will come if the four principles are not adhered to. If data is being rerouted to a new agency, HHS, and there is no transparency around that data, um, they change the diversity of data. They are seeing patterns in that data and then refusing to expose them because of lack of courage. Uh, They're mitigating who can actually play with the data or have access to data, which would violate the collaborative aspect. Now that final statement might be true. Now that would justify, hey, something was done because they're, they, they want a different outcome. They want to control or manipulate through data. Um, and that was my advice to the administration and to the HHS was just, you might wind up with much better information at HHS and CDC. It might have a, a broader sample set. Just follow the principles 
and be very, very vocal that you're following those principles and illustrate you are. And then this whole issue will, will blow past. Sure. Very, very interesting. And so if we think about where we're at culturally now and other time periods in history that might rhyme with the current time that we're living through, it's obviously tumultuous. There are horrible things going on. We're not trying to downplay them. We're trying to you know, find the escape path out. What I think is fascinating is, so the last plague that we went through, you, you could say the Spanish flu and things like that, but the last really big one would be the bubonic plague, the Black Death that spread across Europe. And so I was reading this obscure book from 1934 that proposes this idea. The book's called Techniques and Civilization. It's fascinating. This author named Lewis Mumford, I digress. But anyways, he comes to the conclusion that the creation of the clock is something that helped end the plague and spark a renaissance and the eventual enlightenment. So let's just talk about this a little bit because I think we're on the cusp of something here with data, with these new technologies where we can better quantify and measure what's going on around us. Uh, and hopefully we can spark something that's new. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, 100%. So strong agreement. And again, I know that you know, we're Splunk and, and we're data is our mantra and data everything is, is our tagline. Um, so this is going to sound very self-serving, but I, I deeply believe that data is one of the foundational elements and the rise of a data, ideally with the four principles we talked about, um, will, will be a massive breakthrough um, in all the different aspects that we're dealing with that surround COVID. Um, certainly healthcare and viral research, and but there's so many societal impacts that, that um, are at play that we see tossed up in the air around us because of what's happening with COVID. From the very beginning of the pandemic, there was a really strong um, four-point narrative that I, I attached to and I really liked on how do you actually manage through this, this scenario set. And the four points were, um, one, you had to be able to effectively ramp up tracing, uh, ramp up testing, so that you knew where the virus was appearing and you actually had that initial signal that you had to pay attention to something. Right behind that, you had to have track and trace capability. So you not only knew that where that infections were occurring, but you could actually see patterns before, during, and after an infection. The third, which I think was the real reason we went into shelter in place in the first place, was you had to use data ideally to get significantly higher visibility into the entire medical supply chain, from personnel to equipment to locations. Because um, the the big concern that still is a legitimate concern is especially if you assume you've got effective te testing and track and trace, you could overwhelm a local entity. Um, but if you have visibility and you've got the other two, now you can start to ebb and flow those resources based on what you're seeing. And then the fourth was you obviously had to work on therapies and vaccines and different elements that would lessen the gravity of the situation. We seem to have gone completely off that narrative right now. I don't know why. And I'm not sure how much progress is being made on the, the data orientation around those four, but none of those four can be done effectively without more aggressive and, and, and truly kind of fanatical use of data. Um, and ideally, again, that data needs to adhere to those four principles so that we actually trust the outcomes. Um, as a corollary, and I don't want to make light of anything as you started, Chad, because um, there's so much hardship and, and uh, sadness happening around us. There are so many breakthroughs in society, in culture, in beliefs that are happening right now that provide huge openings and in really positive ways for the way that we work together as humans. 
Um, something as simple as remote work, which we've been talking about for uh, 50 plus years, certainly most of my life. We've now are living a grand experiment that radically has us rethinking how much work can be done remotely. And obviously big chunks of work can't. You've got a, a doctor eventually needs to touch a patient or you know, someone eventually needs to deliver a package. And we'll see if robotics and other things can help there in the future. But for now, you know, people actually physically have to go to work for some jobs, but a huge amount of jobs don't have to be done in a fixed location. But what is that going to do for the environment? What's it going to do for culture? What's it going to do for societal interaction? What's it going to do for ebbs and flows of people in, within countries and between countries? But there's so much interesting outcome that I think this horrible situation is handing us that if we are thoughtful and bring data to a lot of it, um, I think life could be meaningfully better a decade or two decades from now because of this, um, even though we have to go through this hardship now. Right. And one of the things that's fascinating about this uh, transformation is that we have this migration happening where people are able to live and work from anywhere. Not everyone, but certain people are able to work remotely. So they're moving to tier two, tier three cities, or just, you know, out in the wilderness or to Austin, to Texas, you know, to Tennessee, all over the place. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, but what trends are you seeing when you talk with other executives right now? Uh, obviously, offices are moving. Is there anything you can share there about the migration that's happening? I am a part of a number of CEO groups, which I find super valuable and especially incredibly valuable when there's this much change happening. And the, the honest answer is there is so much diversity on what different people are seeing in different parts of a country like ours and certainly what they're experiencing in different parts of the world. And it's further refined again by what industry you're in and what you do for a living. Some people are, as we've all read about, are benefiting pretty dramatically from COVID. The number of Zoom users has quintupled um, as everyone has to turn to different mechanisms to communicate without physical locations being the primary um, gathering spot. So some are really benefiting, some are kind of neutral, and some are absolutely devastated by this. So uh, a huge variety. I do think that this might, the uh, ability for work to be done in creative ways that they hadn't thought of before, even in manufacturing industries and service industries, I think that has been mind-blowing for many different organizations. Honestly, as we, we just talked about, I think this will, in a more radical way than we've seen maybe since the Industrial Revolution, um, completely alter people's perceptions of what is work and what is necessary to get work done. I'm really excited about the innovation. The amount of creativity um, that I'm seeing in the service industry, as an example right now, is, is off the charts. And I think it will stay with us well past COVID when it no longer is necessary to have the innovation that people are driving when you can't physically gather like we used to. Right. And yeah, there's an interesting thing happening too, where we're decoupling the outcome from the, the inputs where, you know, corporate doesn't necessarily need to analyze all the inputs that are necessary to create a certain output, which allows for creativity, people to try new ways to get things done. And it's an exciting time to say the least. I'd love to drill down on one of the things you mentioned, which is, you know, you're a member of several CEO groups. So speaking personally, you know, becoming a member of, uh, you know, recently over this last year of a veterans group, was critical for me because it helped spark this process where I ended up getting uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. 
And this is something that's uh, a bit more, some people think it's radical, some people think it's completely normal, but whatever you think, it's been shown to be really efficacious for treating PTSD. The moral of the story is I never really would have had the courage and the support to do that had I not been part of this veterans group. So I'm curious, when you are a member here of these CEO groups, what other insights, what other things do they provide? And you know, feel free to anonymize any of these stories, but I would love to hear how these have helped you. Well, first of all, Chad, I'm so happy that you found that incredibly positive experience. It just goes with what I know about you that you're willing to talk openly about it because it's so important for people to, for all of us to be vulnerable so we can help other people. And offline, we'll talk more about that. And I'm really happy for you. For the CEO groups, uh, they were actually relatively formulaic uh, before. Uh, you'd gather once a quarter, once a semester. Um, there'd be, it was based around that last generation of everyone has to physically be there. There'd be relatively fixed agendas, you know, some great speakers, some interesting topics. You've got into these smaller breakout rooms. And what I've seen since March is the frequency has gone way up. We've got, we've got a, a self-formed group that meets weekly. Um, most of the groups are meeting biweekly or once a month. The agendas are significantly more fluid. And in most cases, the vulnerability and openness is way up. There's always uh, a face that you want to put on amidst a bunch of other CEOs and uh, share, share enough, but you can't really say, hey, I'm dealing with this super, super hard issue and all this ugliness. Um, but when we're all on our backs and scrambling, um, we're just all focused on how do we get the best information we can and how do we make the most courageous decisions we can make? So the topics are exactly what you'd guess. What are people predicting is happening with the economy, which means that um, organizations have got to be very vulnerable. Like you've got to, people from different industries say, here is what's really, really happening in an unvarnished way um, that you wouldn't want walls, you know, that, that you've got to be careful how you talk about if you're a public company. So what, what's going on with the economy? Uh, what's happening with social unrest within different organizations? Uh, what's happening with mental health of employee populations? Uh, what's happening uh, with this mobility orientation and what kind of uh, allowances are people creating for their employee base to be significantly more, more mobile? But you know, really interesting topics that are less about the usual international trade and economics and succession planning, and which are still really important topics, but it's a very dynamic set of discussions. Um, and I find myself taking a page to three pages of notes on every single one of these calls as we're all comparing and contrasting how we're dealing with this sudden rise of very, very unexpected events. Sure. Yeah. Knowledge sharing is critical here to help map a good way out. So Doug, when it comes to storytelling, uh, I know, I believe you're you went to film school, so you have some interest here. And storytelling is obviously critical for any executive. It's a very helpful skill. How has your storytelling evolved over the years? What steps have you taken to improve it? And then I'm hoping to jump in here to original content. We could talk about favorite directors, things of that nature. But I'll let you start with your storytelling abilities. I would say I'm mediocre storytelling. And <laughs> my film school was the uh, what I call the equivalent of a fantasy baseball camp. <laughs> We had just sold a company. And at that point in time in my life, I think I was 29, 30, I was like, wow, I've got so much money. What do I really want to do? Um, it's like, well, it'd be so much fun to live in Manhattan. And I've always been fascinated by films and storytelling. And uh, so it was a, a program that anybody could get into. It was right next to NYU. So we went up with uh, really, really interesting 
uh, writing teachers, directing teachers, acting teachers, and it was so much fun. I went with one of my good friends. We uh, lived in the East Village when it was dangerous to live in the East Village. We lived in Soho while it was cool, just renting other people's places. And my justification, because I was a high-tech guy, uh, this was 1995, I think, 94, 95, was the internet was just being born. And you could see that visual medium and storytelling was become increasingly important to high-tech. That, that you know, kind of isolated CD-ROM multimedia thing that was very sequestered to LA and a handful of other places that, you know, with Netscape just launching and that this was going to be much more pervasive. So I justified a six month fantasy baseball camp or in my case, film baseball camp um, by saying, Hey, this would help my career. I'm not so sure how much it did, but I had a fantastic time there. I have to tell you with what's happening right now with, with COVID and everything going virtual, we do have a awesome user conference. That's one of my favorite events in the entire high-tech landscape, even before I was at Splunk. The group is so passionate and it's so real. And it's about how do you how do you do miraculous things with Splunk, but with technology. It's coming up in fall and it's all virtual. And I have been absolutely leaning on the things I learned in film school because you know, we're on camera now. We're not on a stage. And um, so it's been interesting to see at different points in my life how it's kind of popped up uh, in unexpected ways to at least make me ask questions or have an appreciation for something that there's no way I would have had without, without my six months sabbatical uh, back in Manhattan. Right. And these are good times to be a storyteller, to be familiar with digital media. Um, anything you can share about Conf or any projects that Splunk is working on right now that are coming up soon? We definitely, uh, I, I highlighted for our board of directors years ago that I thought there are a number of probably surprising things that were in Splunk's way of being as great as we could be. Um, and the number one thing I put down was people don't really know who we are. Our vision is all around machine data. Like that's not approachable. People don't understand what machine data is. It, for us, it means a lot. As a bunch of techies, like, oh my God, <laughs> people aren't paying attention to all this data coming from machines. And what can you do with that data? But it ultimately came back to, we've got to tell if we really want to bridge the gap from our ardent champions are doing miracles with Splunk within their organizations to the people that ultimately control the funding for what they do and the visibility of what they do. And if we want to make what data makes possible pervasive, we've got to get to people that are less technical and we've got to get to different executive camps outside of the CIO and the CISO um, to provide air cover for, for the people that primarily use our products. Um, so a couple of years ago, it was with intent focus that I communicated to the board and that we really have been marching with um, hiring and different firms that we're working with to get us to much more crisp understanding of what to Splunk do and ultimately led to the launch of our data to everything category and vision, um, which I, I still love, super controversial, not grammatically correct, um, but the, the genesis of Splunk was all about not ever thinking about or worrying about the structure of data because there's beauty in the garbage that exists in non-ordered data, but the entire world doesn't think that's important. Splunk did. And because of that, you can do anything with the data you gather in Splunk in that initial incarnation, because every bit, every byte is actually trapped somewhere in a non-formatted version so that you can come back a year later and get a whole set of insights you never thought that you would have imagined you would have gotten. So the foundation I thought was very true, but it really was trying to reinforce the storytelling of 
we are entering a data age. We are firmly in this data age. The whole point of moving to software for so many business processes is there is so, well, it provides a lot more agility and flexibility. And obviously you can move virtually quickly on a software world, but there is so much data being generated on a sub-millisecond to sub-millisecond basis from the technology artifacts that are part of this digitization. And if you're able to actually, if you care about, you even, you even raise a concern of, hey, maybe I should grab that data and put it somewhere so I can look at it at some point in time. You know, you're on the first step to being a data guru. You've got to admit that it's important. Um, and bringing data to everything is gonna make the world a much better place. Um, within Splunk, we really, really focus on our go-to-market, on all of our solutions around three core buying centers, um, the cybersecurity team, the infrastructure management and IT ops teams, and the application development and DevOps teams um, that create all the great applications and cool stuff we all get to work with. But So our storytelling um, increasingly under the dated everything halo is, so what does that mean for you Mr. Security Analyst. What does that mean for you, Mrs. Software Developer? How can you use data, whether it's ever goes through Splunk or not, in ways that dramatically impact not just your daily life, but the lives around you? Um, and that the whole set of stories that we're focused on as we release uh, a whole new set of really compelling information and insights around this data, data age report um, is to try and get much more specific on the stories that bring to life the power of data and why it's important to bring data to everything. Yeah, and I think the cynical listeners, if there are any out, out there, I don't think there's many that listen to the show, but if there are, you know, it's easy to think, well, what's the, what's the tangible here? What are organizations able to do? And so in a recent earnings report uh, that Splunk released, I was reading through it, and the team mentioned something about businesses and clients of Splunk being able to complete three to five year projects in just months. So that's a, you know, a really bold statement. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And are there any examples of uh, radical cutting down the time and, you know, going from three to five year project to just months? Because that's a pretty radical transformation. Yeah, it's amazing um, what compelling events do. <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredible how many excuses we put up. Um, there are logical excuses on why we can't do something. And then when your feet are on fire and you don't have any choice, you perform miracles. You know, one great example, as I think everybody knows, New York was one of the first metro areas to really be dramatically impacted by COVID. Um, and the entire uh, New York school district had to go virtual in, uh, in a week, really, almost over a weekend. That is, as we all know, is an incredibly difficult challenge. And they had a plan to become much more virtual and much more technology-driven to be able to deliver education. That was a multi-year journey. And this is just one of thousands of stories. Um, and obviously that plan was thrown out the window and they had to figure out how do we do it in seven days. And Splunk, luckily, and, and we're very grateful that we're able to help them became a key component of that journey. Um, and obviously what we were helping them with, because um, we don't make VPNs, we don't make firewalls, we don't make endpoints and uh, tablets that you consume all this great education from, but we were able to trap the data from all those devices. And going virtual is one thing, uh, making sure that your virtual services are up, making sure that they're secure, uh, making sure that there's a quality of service capability is all critically important when you've got hundreds of students and, and tens of teachers across millions of students and hundreds of thousands of teachers in these different pods that, that really don't want and can't have 
um, any of those aspects fail. The remote work package that we crafted literally in less than 14 days from the time this shelter-in-place order started to be uh, handed down in early March, um, that was, that's still free to all of our customers, um, was a key vehicle for, for the New York education team um, to be able to get those insights. If you can't see what's happening, um, then you don't know when, the, when there's a problem and you can't be proactive on trying to deliver uh, fixes before things completely melt down. Um, it's, it's one of so many stories that I'm, I'm super proud of because it's in these trying times, things like delivering education and, and doing everything we can to not allow students to be left behind, um, especially those that might be more challenged in getting access to internet and technology. And is become, it goes from critical to mission critical. Um, and, and they've just been doing a really, really phenomenal job of rising to the occasion in, in very difficult times. When it comes to thinking more broadly about our future as a species, as team human, we're fighting through this pandemic now, fighting through cultural change. And one of the recent events that's really inspired me is that we're finally able to take our astronaut, astronauts to and from the space station again. So thanks to SpaceX, NASA, and its partners, you know, we now have these ambitious plans to return to the moon, build a base, get to Mars. Uh, we've got satellite inter internet coming here, Starlink. This is going to mean thousands of new things, new satellites in space that are sensor rich. So with all of this, you know, momentum moving to opening up this new frontier, data is obviously going to be, and data analysis and, and uh, the funneling and channeling of it is going to be critical here. So when it comes to space, I know it's early, but are there any fun examples, thought experiments, or you know, what are you thinking about here for the role of Splunk and the role of data in opening up this new frontier? <laughs> um, like you, I am a space fanatic. I am so happy that space is actually back in the forefront of um, so much of our, our lives around us, and I am blown away by um, what companies like SpaceX, but you know, SpaceX with NASA and with Blue Origin and what they're doing and, and the willingness and the courage of government to really lean forward with private-public partnerships to accelerate the, the, the pace of innovation. I, interestingly enough, Splunk actually is collecting data um, from some of those um, organizations and some of the equipment that they uh, are both using um, and throwing up in, into space. Our key contribution, because data is multifaceted and has a ton of specific technologies and architectures for specific use cases. Um, our contribution is the time is, is data where time is the primary pivot. And luckily with uh, a lot of the space elements, at least for diagnostics, um, but also for potential prevention, being able to, to amass massive amounts of data, um, and it's, it's only going up from all the different sensors on satellites, spaceships, vehicles, et cetera, um, and being able to make sense of the, being able to, to drive to an effective time landscape and be able to make sense of activity across that time dimension, hopefully will continue to be very important on everything from what's circling the globe to the different facilities on land um, and the different applications that are being built to try and drive those initiatives of humans in space, humans on the moon, humans on Mars, you know, potential agriculture in space, mining in space. We're excited to see how Splunk can continue to play a role as we serve many of the private industries and, and definitely the public industries uh, that are part of the, the space race. 
when you originally joined Splunk, did you ever think that you would be able to start working with these agencies? Was that on your mind or, you know, take us back to the beginning and now maybe what's that journey been like? Yeah, it's, no, I, I honestly, I'm so, um, I'm so appreciative and grateful of, of how, uh, the, the partner ecosystem, the customer ecosystem and our incredible employees have leaned in to continue to, um, grow what we do and evangelize what we do. And we're becoming more and more involved in, in areas that I, I just, I would have never guessed you know, the ability for us to be part of DNA sequencing and, and gene, genome projects. And, uh, as we were talking about uh, space exploration and um, logistics and supply chain optimization, those are all amazingly important areas where everything is censored and being able to interpret what's happening on a near real-time basis around that time axis are critically important. To go from our you know, really focused and humble beginnings of just trying to help that poor IT ops team do a better job of understanding what was the root cause of a system's failure when 100 people are screaming at each other at 2 a.m. because an app is down. And that, that's where we started to find us in all these different life critical and, and human critical and inspirational scenarios um, is, is part of certainly what makes me excited to jump out of bed every day and um, see what we can do to, to keep Splunk going forward. But I, but I hear that from so many other employees and the whole ecosystem around Splunk. Sure. Yeah. And Splunk 2, for those not familiar, is a whole suite of products. And you, know, you alluded to like real-time monitoring and things like the recent acquisition of SignalFX there, maybe. So this is like a very exciting genesis of company and of products. And I'm really excited to see what you and the team do in the future here. Doug, thanks for being generous with your time. I'd love to talk about one more thing here before you go, which is Splunk has created a number of in-depth research reports. Uh, the dark data report is something that listeners of this podcast and followers of the mission might be familiar with. We've talked about it a lot. It's fascinating, but you recently released something called the data age report, which is brand new, where you've taken insights from 2,200 business and IT leaders and really teased out some fascinating trends. That report has recently been released on September 1st, the day of this publication. So tell us a little bit about the data age report and this new time period that we're entering. Data, as I say over, over and over that we, are, we were born as story processors, not as logic processors, um, which is a line that I always throw back to the person I heard it utter it, which is Yuval Harari. It just resonates so, so deeply with me. Um, data informs stories, but we really are effective because of our stories. Because of that, I think data is difficult for humans. I, that, that is not a natural motion for us to turn to. And what I think the data age report builds on beyond the, the dark data report is it, it really just continues to flush out that there is so much low-hanging fruit for every company and every individual if they're willing to take the time to actually think about data as being an interesting addition or component to the decision that they're about to make, the project they're about to start, the problem that they're facing. And that just comes through over and over in this data age report that we are already on a, on a fast path to digitization. This actually, I think the report went out before COVID, so we didn't even see the full impact of COVID in, in this. COVID has accelerated so many of these trends on an unreal basis. What are each of us going to do, and it's targeted mostly to organizations, 
what are what, what are each of us going to do within our organization to make sure that we build the data muscle, um, stop allowing the data to fall on the floor and run out the building and disappear forever, um, and really raise our, our data acumen so that we can lead our organizations much more effectively. What all of you will see in the report is hard quantitative results over and over on the benefits of using data, on revenue generation, on customer satisfaction and success, on cost optimization, on research and development and innovation and every aspect of a company and why it makes sense to really force a data agenda and drive uh, the hiring and development of of data-oriented skills within a company. there, There is almost no other area I can think of that has a more profound return on investment um, and is necessary as a foundational item. Machine learning and, and eventually AI is impossible without data. Like there's so much foundational capability that we all will rely on to drive our personal lives and to drive our organizations. And, and it will only come by becoming much more proficient, appreciative, and facile with data. Doug, I love that. And when we combine it with the four principles of data leadership, the transparency, diversity, collaboration, and courage, This is a win-win to say the least. Thanks for being generous with your time and to everyone listening. We'll see you next time. Always enjoy being on your show, Chad. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. I'm Sophia Bush, and you've been listening to Hidden in Plain Sight from mission.org. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Splunk, the data to everything platform. In today's data-driven world, every company, big or small, new or old, is sitting on terabytes of unused, untapped, and unknown data. Splunk helps turn all that data into action. Using cutting-edge AI and machine learning, Splunk delivers real-time predictive insights that will help you on your mission to change the world. With solutions for IT, security, Internet of Things, and business operations, Splunk empowers people to make faster, better decisions and take action to get things done. It's time for our data to be more than a record of what happened. It's time to make things happen. Check it out at Splunk.com.